Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the cult horror movie The Babadook, which is the feature film debut of Australian writer-director Jennifer Kent. Starring Essie Davis and child actor Noah Wiseman, it tells the story of a widow raising her young son who becomes increasingly obsessed with an imaginary monster called The Babadook. You have probably heard of this movie because it has a very memorable title. It's also scary as hell, which is why I hadn't seen it until recently because I love horror movies and I've watched many, many, many in the past few years. But The Babadook and It Follows were like the two horror movies that I was like, oh, they're too scary for me to watch until last week when I did. Would not really recommend It Follows, but The Babadook is amazing and terrifying. So I made Morgan watch it too. <laughs> I love It Follows, but this is not a podcast about It Follows, and I haven't it seen follows it in three was, like, years. It Follows like, fine, so. but, you know. We don't need to discuss yeah. that movie, which I think is great. Very different from this totally different stylistic and thematic approach. Yeah, I we were talking about this before we started recording, that like I remember this movie being talked about a lot, and it was really, really critically acclaimed at the time, and has definitely become a cult favorite movie. And the memes helped it stay alive, which we will discuss later. If you're someone who's not seen the film but is aware of the memes, the memes bear no relation to the film. No. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> But uh, I wasn't seeing as many horror movies in 2014. I don't see like a ton of them now, but if something is well received, I'll go see it. But this is the sort of thing that I definitely would have gone and seen in the theaters and I didn't see it. And obviously you just miss things sometimes. We were looking up the box office and it made under a million dollars, the box office in the United States. And I was like, oh, that would explain why I didn't see this. But like was- everyone must have been watching on streaming because... Right. 2014 I don't think I even heard about it when it came out but there's just like so many people have talked about it since then like it really has had this kind of cult boost in popularity over the past few years yeah and it was interesting to me watching it to think about the experience of seeing a horror movie alone in your house or even with people in your house I was watching it alone in my apartment versus seeing it in a theater because I kept thinking about the how the experience would have been different seeing it in a theater. And I thought this movie was great. I really enjoyed it. And I did think it was scary. There were moments where I was definitely frightened. But um, I was comparing it a lot to Hereditary in my head. And I think this movie is better than Hereditary, actually. And we'll compare them um, a bit later because they are very thematically similar. And I like both of them. But I thought that this movie was... Uh, I would say less technically accomplished in certain ways, but kind of more interesting thematically in other ways. But I definitely had a lot more fun watching Hereditary, which I realized that uh, is not the experience that other people have watching that movie. (laughs) But I saw that in a packed cinema with one of my best friends and we were like screaming at the screen and like freaking out and the whole audience was reacting, right? And there's a reason that horror movies are doing so well at the box office right now is because that's an experience that you cannot replicate in your own home. And... I don't know where I'm going with this really, but it was interesting to watch this sort of removed from that context because I thought at a number of moments in this film, I had the distinct thought, oh, I bet that would be really scary in the theater, but I wasn't as scared by it. Yeah. And yet this is a movie that is done unbelievably well on streaming. So clearly it does have something to it that's made it a cult thing out of that context, which is interesting. I mean, I didn't watch this alone I watched it with a couple of friends and we were all enjoying being absolutely terrified together. So (laughs) we kind of of part part of that experience. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, I definitely, like, especially sort of some stuff in the mid part of the movie when, so the first part of the film, they find this book called Mr. Babadook, and that's where this sort of monster originates, right? And so the the first part of the film, obviously you know the monster is going to be real because it's a horror movie, and what would the point be if the monster wasn't real? But within the sort of context of the film, you don't know yet because you haven't actually seen anything. And the setup is that the little boy, the son of this woman, thinks that the monster is real and he's acting in this kind of erratic and out of control way that could just be him being really erratic and out of control. And she is trying to deal with this as a single mother and it's really difficult for her and she's just kind of losing it because she has this kid who's just not behaving. And then the middle of the movie is kind of the transitional zone for maybe 20 minutes or so where you can tell the thing is sort of starting to come because she can start to sense its presence. And I found that to be the most scary part of the film because you're just like, what's happening? Like, what's going on? And there's a little bit of jump scare stuff, but it's not even so much that as like this ominous sense of like oncoming something. And I did find that really scary and really enjoyable in a scary way. But the stuff at the end that I think was supposed to be really terrifying, I didn't find as frightening because I think by that point I had figured out what the movie was doing more, right? And so I was like, oh yes, here we are. And like someone was playing music on the street, right? Like this is the thing about <laughs> watching movies in New York is that there's always something going on. And so you can't ever have the sort of pure experience of the film. And also obviously watching a movie for the purpose of like talking about it after the fact is that you're watching with a very specific mindset of like analyzing it. But I still did think it was really great. I just wasn't as viscerally affected by it, I think, as I would have been if I had seen it in another context. But I also don't, I mean, I like horror movies a lot. I don't get scared at stuff very easily, even in a movie theater. So I do. (laughs) Yes. I recently watched Insidious, which is, not good. It's not good. <laughs> I loved it because I love a corny old James Wan movie. I screamed during Insidious and that is embarrassing. <laughs> the monster in that is like a cartoon devil. <laughs> I was just like, I can't fucking believe this is what you're giving to me right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Babadook, one of the th- main things that has in common with Hereditary is sort of the first half of the film is very much in the vein of like kind of social realist drama And it's about this very troubled family and kind of the main tension is about the lead character being a single mother who's under a lot of pressure. She she works in a nursing home, so she's got like quite a high stress job, which she kind of clearly enjoys. She doesn't really make that much money. And like, she's really seriously grieving with her husband to the extent where she still can't even talk about him, even though he's been dead for like six or seven years. She died like on the day that she was going to give birth to her son. And so she's trying to be a single parent to this kid who's clearly really troubled and is getting in trouble at school because even before he reads the Babadook book, he's like obsessed with the concept of monsters. He's very kind of badly behaved in a way that clearly he's got like behavioral and emotional problems and no one's really handling anything very well. And it's sort of one of these things where a lot of the tension and the fear in the film is not even related to supernatural stuff. It's more to do kind of with their relationship. And that's a really common theme in a lot of successful horror movies a lot of people kind of talk about how horror is 
the genre of like quote-unquote genre cinema that has by far the most female protagonists like not just sort of the classic scream queens where it's like girls running away from people with chainsaws but like there's a lot of horror movies that are really specifically about motherhood like the exorcist and rosemary's baby are two like really big examples and kind of the idea of either your child being threatened by something that you can't defeat or something which sort of stems from the old changeling idea of your child being supernatural or changing or being replaced in some way it's just like so terrifying because it's like the idea of wanting to be able to protect the child but also everyone knows that you can't control a child so if your child is starting to do something weird it's like the more you try and control them that's still not like a good result which is kind of what this film is about because this kid is really misbehaving and you can see precisely why she's so stressed and like that was really the driving force of the filmmaker Jennifer Kent's kind of emotional journey for this film. She wants people to be sympathetic to both of the lead characters and they give like such compelling performances like the child actor is so fucking good in this film. You really do kind of sympathize with both of them but like as the situation gets more stressful the mother's sort of edging into like abusive parent territory and that's kind of when the monster stuff starts to become real but something i thought was really interesting kind of looking at interviews with jennifer kent like about this film is um you know she's a she's an ethical filmmaker (laughs) she uh she made sure that the child didn't have to do a bunch of fucked up stuff which is always something i'm kind of interested in with this type of movie right because there's so many especially horror movies that have roles for little kids in them and there's definitely like some filmmakers like there's different techniques you can use for stuff right like obviously there's a lot of films where like kids have curse and use sexual language and stuff and it's one of these things they have kind of like negotiate with parents like some directors are better than others at kind of having that conversation with child actors and uh, what they did with this film was in the scenes where the mother is being like really scary or abusive to the son towards the end or has to like say something that's really upsetting and adult rated they just had her performing to like an adult double who was just kneeling down so they have someone who looks like the back of the kid's head and I was like good good choice because he was like six years old or seven or something that is too young to know this stuff and when you kind of think about that compared to stuff like like Stranger Things where the directors just randomly one day on set made two of the child actors kiss even though it wasn't in the script and it was like one of their first kisses or something and it's like that's appalling workplace behaviour. So it's like good to hear about a story about a director who understands how to work with children. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think the cutting away stuff like that is a pretty common technique. Yeah. I think... Especially when you get movies, they're dealing with themes of sexual abuse, etc. With children, you can always tell that they're doing that, obviously. But sometimes uh, the directors don't do that because they don't give a shit. Yeah. So I thought it was done really well in this movie because I wasn't thinking about it at all. Oh, me neither. I didn't even think about it at all. I was just thinking, like, they're really convincing. <laughs> yeah. And then after the fact, I was reading up on it too. And then was like, oh, of course, because, yeah, he's very little. I thought he was incredible. This he kid, was really good. No wise men. So, I mean, the movie is basically like a horror story about both being a parent and having a parent. Yeah. Right? It's just like, it's bad. There's no, <laughs> there's no real positive outcome here. Yeah. And being repressed. The combination of like having repressed trauma and the lack of kind of, I guess, partly social safety net, like social services do appear in this movie, but they're not very competent. And kind of the way that the mother is isolated, which is kind of the key theme for 
a lot of horror movies in general, which often take place in the suburbs or in isolated environments for fairly obvious reasons, and kind of the reason why these people end up in these situations because they don't feel able to reach out or they're like physically prevented from reaching out for help. And in this film, basically the only person she's still really in touch with from her life is her sister, who's already kind of exasperated with her because she and all of the other mothers they hang out with think that this kid is unbearable and they don't want their kids around this child who's clearly troubled and don't have a great deal of genuine sympathy for the situation, which is pretty realistic. And then there's a guy at work who's kind of helpful, but like obviously no one's going to want to get invested in something that's clearly such an intense problem. So she is completely isolated. And that is one of the key driving forces behind a lot of these parent-child horror movies. Just the idea that most parents in the current Western vision of like nuclear families especially if you're a single parent, people are fucked because like no one has the kind of family connections everyone would have had 200 years ago. Yes, I think that is an important part of the setup of the movie. And obviously the family trauma stuff is really important because the husband slash father figure is dead and that is affecting her behavior so much. She clearly isn't over it. And then, I mean, we're spoiling the whole movie. It came out five years ago. What What can we say? But the Babadook later, when she's kind of got it in her head, uh, takes the form of her dead husband to sort of tempt her, right? Because that's the thing that she wants the most, is for him to come back to life. But for me, the movie was kind of using all of those things, not in a superficial way, but using them not as the main point, but sort of as things to get to the main point, which was a more kind of archetypal or symbolic depiction of the mother-child relationship that goes beyond those external factors, right? Because obviously, I think she does a really good job of making both the mom and the kid very specific people. Not every child, obviously, is going to have the specific problems that this kid does. Clearly, he's been really affected by the fact that his father is dead. He's really paranoid about something happening to his mother. He's misbehaving in particular sort of egregious ways that a lot of children don't. Like the fact that she has to deal with this alone or at all is really hard for her. But especially in the first half of the movie where you're really with her perspective and not his, I found that kind of the most harrowing part of the film. And nothing sort of uh, horror movie-ish is really happening at that point. It's just that you're watching this woman have to deal with this kid in a way that you don't see in movies very much at all. You don't see that kind of parenting work happening on screen almost ever. You mostly just see it in horror movies because that's the place where you can have like an excuse to really explore an intense parent-child relationship without it being like a harrowing drama that no one's going to watch. (laughs) Right. And Jennifer Kent sets it up with all of these sort of explanations for why he's behaving in an extreme way. But to me, what she was kind of doing was using that as a vehicle for depicting how hard it is to be a mother and deal with this all the time, even if your kid isn't this bad, right? I mean, not that he's like a bad kid, but he's obviously doing things that are particularly exhausting. And it is just really, really difficult for her and I found it quite difficult to watch very compelling but like that was the stuff for me that was really sort of 
like, oh my God. And then when it got to the more traditional horror movie stuff, I was like, this is much easier because it's less <laughs> it's like, like oh. what a relief. They're just being terrorized by a murderous monster. <laughs> right, exactly. And then the sort of genius of the movie, I think, is that it shifts to her being really awful when the sort of monster is in her. And so you get then also his perspective of having to deal with this mother who is very much like the scene in Hereditary where Tony Collette's character kind of tells her son that she didn't want him and all this horrible stuff. The mother character in this sort of spews all of this stuff out to her son that's really, really awful and nasty. And you're getting at all of these sort of uncomfortable, unpleasant things about both being a mother and being a child that we're not sort of allowed to talk about in society, right? And I'm not saying that, like, people who have kids, like, hate their kids or whatever, but the vision we have of women with children is that they're just, like, overjoyed all the time at, like, the beautiful gifts that they've been given, whatever, right? And in fact, you're, like, exhausted all the time, you know, your kid gets us to a certain age and they're really fucking annoying all the time. You don't have any free time because you're constantly occupied with your child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a child, like you always have issues with your parents, even if your parents are really good parents, there's always some level of sort of difficulty or resentment. And this movie really sort of rips that open in a way that I found really affecting. And what is particularly satisfying about it is at the end, she's basically still like protects her son and is real and vice versa. And so the sort of the way it sort of concludes is that she is most motivated by love for her son, even though you've seen all of this stuff. And so the vision of the film is basically, yes, all of this sucks and it's really difficult, but this is the most important relationship that they have, which I thought was really, really compelling because it's not the sort of thing that you see very much in movies and even in hereditary which i similarly found really compelling because it was doing interesting things with this sort of material like that's not the conclusion of that movie and um was also like a very different kind of parent-child relationship that like yes and i liked hereditary a lot i'm not saying they have to be exactly the same they are doing things differently but i think i responded more strongly to the um treatment of the sort of thematic material in this and i don't want to be like essentialists but I do think the fact that a woman made this like you can kind of tell like there's certain ways she's handling the mom stuff that I was like oh yes <laughs> mm, that seems right and I just thought it was really really well done in a way that was not always pleasant to watch but very emotionally affecting I mean on the other hand her next film which ordinarily I would be very much looking forward to is like I guess somewhat unexpected in that regard, like in terms of what people kind of stereotypically think of like the type of creative choices that men and women make with like intense material. Cause her next film just has half an hour's worth of really intense, explicit rape scenes. And a lot of people have just been walking out of the theaters. I'm not planning to watch that one. It sounds pretty unpleasant. And the way she's kind of been describing people's um, reactions to it is also not great. So, <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, whatever, but, um, Something I really enjoyed about this one is that from the title, I think when this film came out, I sort of assumed it was a bit more of a commercial film, you know, like a weird monster haunting a kid and it's like a children's book monster is like something that could easily just be a more blockbustery kind of American horror movie. 
turns out it's like a really great example of one of these kind of horror monsters where the fact that it's not fully explicable is like such a bonus because like thematically everything ties together but there's no particular need to have any really coherent mythology like it's just the very basic kind of idea of a spirit that is generated by kind of the emotional poison in a place right because like there's different kinds of ghosts which appear and like many cultures that kind of either are about haunting a place or haunting or possessing a person or a kind of a manifestation of grief. And in this case, it's this combination of, you know, the grief, but also the fact that like they can't really escape this situation because they can't express the problems they have. And like something they point out about halfway through is that the mother has basically tried not to speak about her dead husband in years. Like she's never really confronted this with her son. And then this monster, like as it starts to appear it's not like the book has conjured it up which is kind of how this would happen in a cheesier kind of film because even at the beginning of the film like before the monster stuff comes in you know we learn really early on in the film that he's already obsessed with the idea of like monsters and defeating monsters and he's made all these like gadgets and stuff which he thinks he's going to use to protect his mother and also he's really into like stage magician stuff so once they read the Babadook book it's already kind of incorporating elements of that so it's like it's given him a physical form to the idea of monsters that he's scared of and like it looks a bit like a magician's top hat and a cape like it's got that kind of vibe and also like a few scenes later we find out that the mother is a former children's book author so the implication is that like maybe she was the person who made this book while she was in a fugue state or something you know and that's how it got into the house but they don't ever kind of go oh she made it it's never explained and once this has kind of all come together the finale just is is like one of my favorite conclusions for this sort of movie because usually you know either there's some sort of like defeat which does happen in this film like at the end of the movie they do essentially defeat the monster but instead of it being banished uh, the idea is that they've accepted it so now the babadook or kind of the the formless spirit that became the babadook later on lives in the basement of their house and the final scene is the mother and the child now have a much better relationship and they're celebrating his birthday for the first time because they've been avoiding it because it's like the anniversary of, of the husband father's death clearly they're happier and also they're kind of acknowledging all this trauma that they've been ignoring for years and like the very very obvious metaphor for that is the fact that as well as them like sharing this birthday dinner, they're going to collect worms and take them down into the basement to feed to the Babadook, which is going to be living with them forever. And I was like, I fucking love this ending. It was so good. I was like, this is the best possible conclusion you could have to this. None of this, we've banished the monster stuff. Like lean into the metaphor, feed it worms. I love worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really fantastic. I think a lot of these movies tend to fall apart a little bit at the end because it is really hard to conclude a metaphor in a satisfying way, which often is fine. But when a movie does it this intelligently, it's so satisfying because you're like, oh, yes. (laughs) Because it's like, actually, you can't banish grief. Like the first step is that you have now acknowledged the problem, but the problem's still there. So you've got to go and feed it some worms. (laughs) Um, do you remember the the episode of Black Mirror with Donald Gleason and Haley Atwell? Oh, I didn't see that one. It ends in a very similar way. It's I that's one of my I had, don't watch Black Mirror anymore, but that is of the early. Yeah, I heard that episodes. one was pretty good. That's one of the best ones easily, and it's very. It's not as abstract in its metaphor, 
but it's also about grief. The setup for that is that um, Haley Atwell and Donald Gleason are either very seriously dating or they're engaged or something, like clearly committed partners, and he dies in a car accident and she's very upset. And there's a like internet service that can basically create like a version of your lost loved one to help you grieve out of all of their like digital remains basically. And so she winds up with this sort of fake version of him. And initially it seems great because she's like, has her boyfriend back and then it gets weird because he's not actually the person. He's just sort of a copy of the person. And, um, she finds out that she's pregnant and is like, okay, I can't deal with having this like weird fake thing in my house when I have this other stuff to deal with. And so she tries to get him to kill himself, but can't go through with it. And so then he just lives in her attic forever. <laughs> and so she like has this daughter and then is like, okay, well, I guess we just have this thing in the attic forever. And occasionally we'll like bring him up a piece of cake. <laughs> and it's the same kind of like very, very strange, but um, satisfyingly unsettling conclusion to a story of this type where you're just like well he's just up there I guess (laughs) and it's not as abstract as this but I thought of that immediately because I was like oh yes correct although in that he eats cake and not worms and worms are definitely the uh the level up of this as you can um, tell I enjoyed the worms there was actually some really good food in this movie she's always feeding him sort of gray gruelish porridge and sort of weird like white unpleasant depression food and there's like a scene where broken glass makes it its way into the food it's done it's great there's some really great food choices in this <laughs> the production design is really remarkable it is the most comically depressing house i have ever seen in a movie It's also, I'm going to go ahead and assume, not a typical house for Australia because it's like a large Victorian house that I think we have to assume she must have inherited after her husband died because the kind of the point is that she doesn't have a very high paying job. So there's no way she's paying rent on it. But it is kind of the classic spooky house. And there's just sort of a sense of it being cold and empty and forbidding. And like they've got this kind of servant's quarters kitchen and it's all really empty. Also, literally everything in the house is grey. Like, the walls are gray, the furniture is gray. (laughs) Because clearly the movie... Well, Jennifer Kent originally wanted to do it in black and white, and then I assume some money person at some point was like, no, it has to be in color. And so she then, like, attempted to recreate that by just, like, not having any color in it. And the book, which is also, like, another person specifically did the design of the the children's book, The Babadook. And um, it's fantastic. It is the most sort of evocatively weird, unsettling sort of imagery in this book. And it's in black and white. And it's showing their house in the book in an abstract way. And so obviously then the house is meant to be mirroring the book, right? And they do that by having like no color in the house to speak of. But, and it's both really effective and I found a little bit funny because no one on the earth would have a house painted like five different shades of black and gray. <laughs> like, like the couch is gray. Like, um, and like, she obviously wants to create a particular look for the movie. And it's very effective because the whole thing does feel very flat and kind of deadened. 
And even Essie Davis, the lead actress, has very pale skin and very sort of pale blonde hair and has this washed out quality to her, which fits in with that too. And uh, it just all comes together really well visually, I think, although it did make me laugh a little bit. Essie Davis is fantastic in this movie. Really, really, really compelling performance going from a sort of very closed off person who's having trouble dealing with this parenting situation too at the end just screaming at her kid and climbing the walls and all out just freak out performance which was really satisfying and we've already praised Noah Wiseman the child actor but I just want to reiterate he is so fantastic because he also has to in the first part of the movie be just like truly fucking creepy like he has to do the sort of classic horror movie unsettling child thing in the first part while also like he has to convey that he's troubled in like a realistic way right he can't just be truly like the omen kid you know but also kind of unsettling and then in the second half when the perspective of the movie shifts to him a little bit more you have to be completely sympathetic to him and you are so obviously a lot of that is the filmmaking and of course she's directed like jennifer kent is directing this kid and so she's getting the performance out of him. But I found him unbelievably compelling in both sort of iterations of his character, which was, if that doesn't work, the movie doesn't work at all. Yeah. And I thought that was really great. Do we have anything else to say about this movie before we get into the meme? I think it's time to get into the meme. Yeah. You should explain, I think. (laughs) You're the internet reporter. I think it was either last year or the year before, there was this very viral meme about the Babadook being gay. And then people were wearing Babadook costumes to Pride and stuff. And there was all this kind of online discourse about whether this was kind of subtextually homophobic, the idea of the Babadook being a gay icon. And I just remember just like cringing all the way through this because virtually everyone who was discussing this was unaware of the origins of the joke. It was an absurdist tumblr meme first it was literally originated with like one tumblr post where someone was like the babadook is canonically gay or something along those lines right and the joke just was like the idea of films saying some character is like queer when they're not and that sort of thing like you know kind of just making fun of the same kind of thing as like when people were making fun of jk rowling saying that sort of thing, like trying to pander to the desire for representation without saying anything meaningful, but also just being like, it's just like surreal Tumblr humor. Like it doesn't fully make sense. And then like, as with quite a lot of Tumblr memes, it then kind of makes its way to other social media platforms. And then like people were spreading it more on Twitter. And then it just caught on into the mainstream and just like massively spiraled. And people started discussing whether it was like problematic to say that this monster harassing a family is gay and also people were like either seriously or I suspect mostly semi-jokingly being like actually it's disruptive to heteronormative like norms you know so it's like this ridiculous thing and then people were like showing up to pride wearing Babadook costumes there was like a Babadook drag queen and stuff it was so ridiculous and like the director had to kind of come and obviously acknowledge it eventually and she was like yeah it's pretty cool which I imagine she would have to because it's like the main reason a lot of people have now heard of the Babadook (laughs) 
Because it kind of gave it this whole new lease on life. Like, recently there have been a few kind of indie movies where the memes have significantly helped them catch on online, like, kind of Phantom Thread stuff. And, like, obviously A Star is Born is, like, a huge movie anyway, but there was a lot of good A Star is Born memes that helped things along the way. And in The Babadook, this is a genuinely tiny movie, and now everyone has heard of the fucking Babadook monster because they've all seen, like, the gay memes. So, Yeah. And the, like, pride thing is real, also. Oh, yeah, people, oh, for sure, for sure. People were definitely, like, there were multiple Babadook costumes. Which is so amazing, because having now seen the film... <laughs> I know. The thing is, right, that, like, the monster visually is funny looking, and there was this other really amazing viral post from, I think, relatively early on, like, maybe the year after the film came out, and it's this person who had gone to a Halloween party dressed as the Babadook. And she was like, I didn't realise what kind of event this was going to be. And it's just a photo of her sitting in like a full Babadook costume in like someone's living room where everyone else is wearing like cocktail outfits and having drinks. <laughs> and it's just like the full like white makeup and like an evil hat and stuff. And it's just like the Babadook visually just looks like a really cartoonish, like it's it's a children's monster. Like it's a Tim burton thing. The film is not that vibe at all. The film is very intense, very frightening, and it's literally about a manifestation of grief and, like, child isolation and stuff. So it's, like, the fact that this has become this sort of, like, oh, I'm a Babadook-themed drag queen is, like, wild. (laughs) I mean, really a testament to the internet's ability to create whatever it wants out of anything. Yes. Because... There's nothing here. and A lot of people will have watched The Babadook after seeing that stuff and been quite puzzled, I imagine. Yes. Which, you know, God bless. Who am I to comment, really? But I was amused because <laughs> there's just, there's nothing. Zero. But here we are on the internet in 2019, and that's what happens. So amazing that that is the sort of longest-lived thing of this film, yes. Um... But yeah, I really thought it was great. If you are someone who enjoys this kind of thing, I would recommend it. If you liked Hereditary, definitely check it out. Or I mean, liked Hereditary, perhaps not the best way of phrasing that. I liked that. Hereditary a lot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, me too, but, uh, yeah. you know, we're traumatized by Hereditary, etc. Or The Haunting like- of Hill House, actually. Like, I loved The Haunting of Hill House, but I far preferred the ending of this to The Haunting of Hill House. I think the ending is an acquired taste. It's like a divisive ending, I believe. Yes. So next week, we will be posting our episode on North and South, which we have been reading uh, for our summer book club. We will also be having our final discussion post on Patreon. We have had uh, a few for the first uh, sections of the book that are already up there. So if you want to check out my thoughts on, you know, 19th century marriage novels and industrialization and et cetera, et cetera. That is available for your perusal, and we will be talking about it on the podcast. We will also, upcoming on the Patreon, be having a uh, mini-sode that I assume will just turn into an episode about the television adaptation, which we will keep you apprised of, which I imagine is the thing that most people are actually interested (laughs) and excited about. Um, I think the the North and South TV miniseries episode will be like the week after the book one yes yes no we're not going to be putting it up at the same time but that will be will be forthcoming so uh if you want to read the book to be prepared for that um we will be talking about it next week 
Uh, I think it's really interesting if you are someone who has read and liked Jane Eyre or any of the Jane Austen novels, especially Pride and Prejudice. Or enjoy England as a concept. Yes. (laughs) Very English. (laughs) Yeah. uh, This has a lot in common with all those books. It's basically a rewriting of Pride and Prejudice, but like with stuff about with a lot of mills. commentary about when you're dying of horrible diseases because you have to work in a cotton mill yes so yeah i'm excited to talk about that i think the book is really interesting it's like just if, if you liked pride and prejudice but you wish the protagonist had more debates about about unionization then. <laughs> <laughs> um yes so that is is forthcoming and All the details are on Patreon. If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon, you can find that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work on the internet? You can find my work at The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.